seriously, I can't figure out what to do with all this room up here. Y'all, we're going to take a break from uh, Romans 12 and <clears throat> the Sermon on the Mount this morning. We're going to be looking at some scripture from the book of Hebrews, uh, which is a very interesting book for a lot of reasons. So before we get specifically to the scriptures that we're going to go over this morning, I want to tell you a little bit about the book of Hebrews because it's it's again, it's an, it's an interesting book, and it's one of those books that we really don't hear a whole lot about, um, especially in comparison to the Gospels and the letters of Paul. Uh, when we read through the New Testament, when we're, when we're teaching or when we're being taught, or a lot of sermons uh, are more geared most of the time toward the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the epistles or the letters of Paul. You don't hear a lot of sermons from Hebrews. I'm not saying you'd never hear them, uh, but in comparison to these other two, again, the Gospels and Paul's epistles, um, it kind of they kind of pale in comparison, or it kind of pales in comparison. And I don't really know why that is, you know, other than other than it is a little bit different. It's a little bit different from uh, from most of the New Testament books. And I just kind of want to want to tell you why that is. Um, first and foremost, before we get before we get into the uh, scripture this morning. Hebrews is all about Jesus, for one thing. If you, um, you can say, well, Jerry, all the Bible's about Jesus. All the New Testament's about Jesus. Hebrews is not a story of Jesus like the Gospels is, like the Gospels are, and it's not, you know, a lot of spiritual and ethical and personal directives like a lot of the um, books of Paul are. Hebrews is primarily about the preeminence or the superiority of Jesus Christ, and that's its main emphasis. It's all about the superiority of Jesus Christ above all others, above all angels, above everything, above all prophets, etc. It basically reminds us, it basically tells us in no uncertain terms that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. And the first few verses of Hebrews really start off with a bang, and those are, those are the ones we're going to talk about here in just a few minutes. But another interesting thing about Hebrews is that nobody knows who wrote it. Nobody knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. There's a lot of suggestions out there, but nobody knows exactly. We know it was part of the early church, but nobody knows who, who authored this thing. Uh, some of the suggestions uh, were Barnabas, Priscilla, Silas, uh, maybe even Luke, or possibly even Paul. Most people Paul believe Paul probably did not write this for a number of reasons. Number one, the writing style is very, very different compared to his other epistles. There's no introduction. Paul generally introduces his letters um, or, or starts his letters with some kind of introduction, and he also gives some kind of conclusion. There's none of that in the book of Hebrews. So more than likely, Paul didn't write it. End of, end of the day, nobody knows, and that's very interesting to me. Another thing is it doesn't read like a letter. A lot of these New Testament books are, are letters. That's what epistle means. It means letter. A lot of these things outside the Gospels are letters. Of course, we know Revelation is not a letter. Uh, but nonetheless, a lot of these things are. It doesn't read like a letter. As a matter of fact, what you're going to find out, and if you'll read beyond what we discussed today, you'll find out that Hebrews kind of sounds like a sermon. It's very much written like a sermon. And when you read it aloud, you can certainly see or you can certainly hear this thing sounds a whole heck of a lot like a sermon. More than likely, that's what it was. It was probably a sermon that was written down at some point, and then it was distributed to, the, to, ver to various churches. So that's why it doesn't read like a letter. So again, Hebrews just kind of stands out for, 
for a lot of reasons, and I don't really understand personally why, why we don't focus on this book uh, more, more than we do, but the fact of the matter is, regardless of who wrote this book, regardless of how, the, of how it is structured, it has always been a part of our New Testament. It was, it was read aloud in the early churches in the first century, and it has always remained um, a part of the New Testament and a part of what we call our canon of Scripture. I'm still on the introduction, folks. But I want to talk to you about one thing before. I want to get, I want to, I want to get sidetracked just for a second because some of y'all probably don't know that word that I just used. And sometimes we, we just need to talk about these things because I think it's important that as, as, as Christians, as followers of Christ, that we understand some of these, some of our history. You know, why do we believe the things that we believe, for example? A word that I just used was the word canon, C-A-N-O-N. Now, that's certainly not the physical canon that comes to mind when we, when we hear that word. Our Bible is a part of what is called the canon, C-A-N-O-N. Of scripture and a canon. What a canon is is basically religious text, and for us, it's Christian text. But it can be really any religious text that have been deemed to be authoritative by who, what, by whatever means. Final, also final and authoritative. Now, here's the thing about Christianity: there are multiple. I don't know if y'all know this or not. I'm sure some of y'all do. I know my, my former Catholic brothers out here that, and sisters that I know know this. Not all Christian canons are the same. Our Protestant Bible has 66 books, 27 of which are in the New Testament, the remainder of which are in the Old Testament. Our Catholic brothers and sisters have a different canon. They have a different Bible. Their New Testament is the same. Their Old Testament varies. It's different. Our brothers and sisters who are members or part of what's called the Orthodox Church have a different canon. They have the same New Testament, but they have a different, slightly different Old Testament than what Protestants have and than what Catholics have. Over the years, some groups of people within these various Christian traditions have gotten together, and they have decided... And I'll let you guys wrestle with this for a while, but just to let you know, they have decided what they think is authoritative and final, what carries the authoritative word of God. And we differ a little bit on some of these things. Again, our New Testaments are the same across the board. Our Old Testaments are a little bit different. Y'all may have heard this word apocrypha before. Those were some of the those were some of the words, some of the letters, some of the books of the Old Testament that were that still remain, for example, in the Catholic Bible. Our Protestants took them out a long time ago because they didn't think that they were authoritative for whatever reason. Anyway, it's very, very interesting um, to study some of this and understand why we have the Bible that we have, how we got the Bible that we have. So let's talk about the New Testament real quick. Because everybody across the board has the same canon of the New Testament, the New Testament was pretty much solidified by the 3rd century, by the, by the way. So we've had it for a long, long time within all factions of the church. How did they decide these things? How did they decide you know, that Hebrews... Got, made its way into the Bible, because there were a lot of books out there. There were a lot of books out there besides the one, the 27 that we've got in the New Testament today. There's a lot of them that got thrown out. Okay, How did people decide that? How was it decided that these 27 books of the New Testament are, including Hebrews, are, are authoritative, they are the Word of God, and they are set in stone? 
there were four things. Four things had to happen. Four things had to be in line in order for these, for these 27 books to make the New Testament. First and foremost, they had to either be written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle. They had to be authored, known to have been authored, by someone who was an apostle of Jesus Christ or someone at least who had a very, very close relationship with an apostle. Number two, could it be dated to the apostolic age? Could it be dated to the age of the early apostles? That was the second consideration. Number three, that word that we use in our, um, in our communion liturgy or in our um, Apostles' Creed, we believe in the, in the one holy Catholic church. I've told you guys that the word Catholic with a little c means universal. So the third thing that had third consideration for how this stuff, how these books wound up in our New Testament was Catholicity or universal. Were these books generally being taught, were the, were the material in these books generally being taught across the Christian spectrum in all churches? Were, were the doctrines and the theologies that was being preached in these books generally accepted across, not generally, period, accepted across the board from all churches? That was the third consideration. Nope, that was all of them. I gave them all to you. Written by an apostle, um, did it conform to the general rules of the, of the Christian faith? That was the last one, orthodoxy. Did it conform to the generally accepted theology and doctrines of, uh, of the Christian faith across the board? So that's how we got our New Testament. And again, this, this happened, this was pretty much finalized, um, decided within the, within the third century. So again, regardless who wrote, whoever wrote Hebrews, regardless of uh, our lack of knowledge, in regard to this particular sermon or letter, it made its way in. And it's a really, really cool book. Sorry I got so sidetracked on that. I just think this is important stuff. Hebrews, again, is a really, really cool book, and we're about to find out that it starts off with a bang. Uh, so actually, the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1, we're just going to be looking at four verses. And... Uh, while we're reading these, I'm going to read them kind of slow, and I want you guys to kind of soak these in. Because, again, this uh, introduction is not only powerful, it contains a lot of really neat, really cool, really pertinent information for us as Christians. So, again, I'm going to read it kind of slow. And I want you guys to kind of take in, kind of digest some of these words that are spoken just in these first four verses, and I think maybe you'll get an idea of what I mean when I tell you that it really that Hebrews really begins with a bang. It really begins with an explosion. So starting in verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors. This would be the Jewish people, the Hebrews. <coughs> through the prophets, our Old Testament prophets, many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Remember we talked about words 
after Christ had provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The word of God for the people of God. Verse 1 and 2 tells us simply that Christ, that Jesus is God's final revelation to First one in particular. Look at it again. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors and the prophets at many times in various ways. But now he's spoken to us through a son who he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe, by the way. The entire narrative of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, really, but particularly in the Old Testament, well, no, the New Testament as well, um, the entire narrative is just a story. It's one continuous, beautiful story of God's attempt to redeem humanity. From Genesis all the way through Revelation. By the way, Revelation kind of is the culmination, right? It's, it's one singular, continuous story of God's attempt to redeem humanity, to make things right where we messed up. Starting in the Garden of Eden, all the way really to the ascension of Christ and, of course, the coming kingdom of God. It's all that one story. God spoke to a lot of people, and he made a lot of prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. We're talking about one of them right now in our, in our Sunday school class. Abraham was one of them. Moses was another. Every single Old Testament prophet that you read bears this image of this, this, this revelation of God's desire and God's purpose to make things right. God didn't design the world like this, folks. This world that we live in right now, this wasn't supposed to happen. But he gave us that thing called free will. And from that moment forward, he's been redeeming us. He's been redeeming humanity. He's been redeeming his entire creation find that again throughout the Old Testament that plan, that desire that redemption he spoke through Moses he spoke through Abraham, he spoke through Isaiah he spoke through Micah all of these Old Testament prophets and in the last days he has spoken to us by his son, period Jesus is the end all of end alls there is no more speaking as far as the redemption of the world is concerned, the Redemption of the world has happened. It's a done deal. And it was finalized in Christ Jesus. It was finalized by what we call the atonement. The death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. God has done his part. All of his promises have come true. Everything that he said he would do, he has done. And all that happened through his son, Jesus Christ. The end all of end alls. God's final revelation, if you will. Verse 2, by the way. Christ, who he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. To me, that just that that that's the gospel in half a sentence. Jesus is Lord, folks. You want me to tell you what the gospel is? I can break it down to three words. Jesus 
is Lord. That's it. As long, if you don't ever get nothing else from me standing up here, remember that. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord over all. Jesus is Lord over our salvation. Jesus is Lord over our sanctification. Jesus is Lord over all my thoughts, all my feelings, all my actions, all my words, etc. Jesus is Lord. Right there, God is, Jesus is who he says he is. The Son, whom God appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. We talked about that this morning too, by the way. That's an interesting little, little fact that, that I'll throw in there for you. Did anybody pick up on that? Whom also he made the universe? Y'all understand that Jesus is eternal, right? That Jesus wasn't created. That Jesus has always been. Wrap that around your head for a little bit. Jesus has always been there. He's not a created figure. He's always been there, right beside God. He created the universe. We talked about a little bit, of, we, we notated that a little bit in our Sunday school class this morning from, the book, from an incident in the book of Genesis where a lot of scholars believe that Jesus appeared as an angel to the prostitute Hagar. Y'all can go back and look that up yourself. Or you can come to Sunday school if you want to. Just say, just say. Look at Scripture 3. I love verse 3. It's one of my favorites of, this, of the four that we go through. And it's truly one of the most beautiful verses uh, to me in Scripture. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. And he is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things through his powerful word. Love that first part. The sun is the radiance of all glory and the exact representation of his being. Simply put, Jesus is God's image bearer. If we understand who Jesus is, if we understand how Jesus thinks, how Jesus talks, how Jesus interacts, particularly in his relationships with people, we understand who God is. There is no separation. I told you guys several weeks ago, we're talking about Old Testament, New Testament. I told you that the Old Testament doesn't conflict with the New Testament. There's no, there's no, there's no conflict there. Okay? The same God that's in the Old Testament, the same God that's in the New Testament. The same God who is in the Old Testament is the same Jesus who is in the New Testament. Okay? We understand who God is because we understand who Jesus is. Okay? And if the God that you worship doesn't look like Jesus Christ, you ain't worshiping God. If the God that anybody is worshiping doesn't look like Jesus Christ, it's not God you're worshiping. Think about that for a while. Especially, again, as it pertains to some of our relationships. And some of this other stuff we've been talking about lately from Romans 12, from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the image bearer of God. That's another reason that he came, for goodness sakes, to show us who God was, what God's character is. Because I'm sure, just like there is now, 2,000 years ago, there's probably some confusion there. Jesus is God's image bearer for us. If you look over in uh, Colossians, I can't remember, I think it's chapter 3, but I can't remember the exact verse. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Folks, 
so many things I want to say about this because we get this so wrong so often. A lot of our brothers and our sisters get this so wrong so often. If the God that you believe in, if the God that you represent, if the God that you speak for on earth does not look like Jesus, it's not the God you're worshiping. And it's not the God that you're telling other people about. Jesus even told his followers in the Gospels, he told his followers, if you've seen me, you have what? You have seen the Father. I can't tell you how many practical implications this has for us as Christ followers, as people who also, by the way, are to bear the image of Christ in our world. When people see us, do they see this? When people interact with us, do they see God's glory in us? When people interact with us, when we interact with people, do they see Jesus in our words, in our behavior, in the things that we do, and how we operate? Just as the Son reflects the image of the Father, how are we reflecting the image of the Son in our world? Because that's what we're called to do. And that's what we're called to do. Verse 4 proclaims that Christ is superior to all. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is superior to theirs. If you were to go on by verse and read on to verse 6, where verse 6 says, let all the angels worship him. Again, I told you in the beginning that Hebrews is all about the superiority and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. He's above the angels. He's above all the prophets. He is above all. In short, Christ is who he says he is. You all remember that he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is life-changing stuff. This is life-changing stuff. This is the stuff that transforms lives for people. I know when my life was initially transformed, it was, and this sounds simple, this sounds simple for people who have been in church a decade, two decades, three decades. But for me, it wasn't because I ran away from God for a long time. But when I finally made that admission, not just intellectually, as I told you guys, not just in my head, but when I finally made that admission in my heart, The simple fact that Christ really is who he says he is, everything changed for my life. Everything. That was the beginning of a new life. That simple admission. That simple submission. That simple heart knowledge. Yeah. Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is who scripture said he was. Jesus is worse, is worthy. That's the message people need to hear about the that's the message that transforms people. That's the message that transforms lives. What does our scripture tell us today for, as believers? It just reminds us. It reminds us that God is beyond, that Jesus is beyond worthy of our worship and our adoration and our imitation. Y'all know I'm especially big on that imitation part. This scripture reminds us that Christ is who he says he is, and he is worthy of our worship, Daryl Wood. He is worthy of all that we can possibly give him. And he is worthy of our imitation in the world. For non-believers like I used to be, it gives us this message again. It's this invitation to 
this invitation to this relationship with Christ, again, that is not only life-changing, but life-affirming. Hebrews, again, is just a beautiful book, and you get this same message all the way through it, all the way through the entire book. It's all about Christ and his superiority. And it even goes it even goes into some of these Old Testament prophets and talks about them and how all these Old Testament prophets were pointing to Jesus Christ the whole time. It's uh, it's just a really cool book. Y'all pray with me real quick. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for one another. We thank you, God, for Christ. We just thank you for your love. We didn't deserve it, but you gave it. We thank you for your son. God, we ask that you would be with us in these next few moments as we receive communion together. We know that Christ is with us now. Ask you, Lord, that you would help us to reflect on his life, on his birth, on his ministry, his teachings, on his death, his resurrection and his ascension, all this stuff that makes, makes it possible for us to have redeemed, renewed lives, all the stuff that makes us possible, makes it, makes it possible to have a life with you, a reconciled life. Be with us these next few moments, Heavenly Father. May we glorify you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.